The seven sayings of the Lord Jesus while being crucified may be considered from a number of different angles. They portray the work of God bringing people to repentance through a cross that reveals our sins and God's saving love. They also portray the just demands of a holy God against those sins that we have committed and the grace of God that meets those demands for us in His Son's sacrifice. Another vantage point is to see that they reveal the great needs and questions central to the human experience. We have longings God has set in our hearts that make us human and that find no other place of answer except in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known among the nations, go to traincpe.org or to discover more about our radio ministry and our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. There are, as we've said, deep questions every human being has stirring in them. These questions are reflected in the words of Jesus on the cross and answered in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We pick up on the message while considering this first question or cry of the human heart. Is there forgiveness for the guilty conscience? We sin and we know it. We've ran to dark places to hide it and we know it. And we have different strategies, by the way, for dealing with that sin. We run from it. We hide from it. We pretend it's not there. We avoid the places and the moments and the things that might remind us of it. I'm reminded as a young man going to East Junior High just down the road. I used to sneak out in the middle of lunch with another friend and Tracy and I would go four-wheeling into the foothills around Boise and I knew I shouldn't be doing it. I knew it was wrong, but we did it anyhow. And so we would sneak out every lunch hour. I was in eighth grade. He was the only eighth grader with a mustache at the time, you know, and he had a, he had a driver's license and so, and he had a car that he was able to drive to school. We drove all over the place. We were driving along the foothills. On more than one occasion, I was told Tracy, I can't do this anymore because I know I shouldn't be doing this. My parents don't know I'm doing it. I know it's wrong, but I couldn't bring myself to say it to him. And, and then we're up in the foothills, and his car died on the top of one of these hills. And, you know, we couldn't get it started. And I knew if we didn't get down, we weren't going to get back to class in time. You know, they were going to call home to find out where we were at from our parents, etc. I got out of the car and I said, Tracy, let's lay hands on this car and pray that it's healed. <laughs> Lord, heal this car. Start it. Well, that didn't happen, but somebody drove by in another truck and he gave us a tow down the hill. But by the time we got back, we had missed the next two or three periods. I just knew my dad was going to find out. I kept waiting Day in, day out, weekend, week out. Tracy told me that it was uh, an oil filter that had got clogged and that's why the car wouldn't start or something like that, or an air filter. Well, you know, after that, every time there was a commercial that was running constantly, seemed like for a year, on air filters for your car. And every time I saw it, it was like, oh. And I began to figure out when it was going to be on, and so I wouldn't watch television at that time. I just couldn't watch it. Well, eventually I told my dad, asked him to forgive me. When we're guilty, we try to run from things, we try to hide from things, we try to ignore the information, we, we try to bury it in some way. At the cross, we have a story of an, a massive sin that's being committed. The crowd is driven Christ, the pure and sinless one, to the cross. They know he's innocent. They've asked for a guilty person to be released instead of him. They've driven themselves to this awful activity through a number of twisted motivations, some seeking power, others out of jealousy, some for fear of the crowd, 
others because they're giving retribution to the Lord Jesus because he hasn't given them what they wanted in the moment. Whatever their strategies were, whatever the reasons for doing it, whatever their motivation was in this horrible sin they're committing, they all felt guilty about what they were doing. They all pulled into themselves the various strategies that people do to deal with the guilt and sin in their life. You feel guilty and the more guilty you feel, the more you protest loudly that you're innocent. And so Pilate, who made the decision to turn him over to crucifixion, before he did it, washed his hands. I'm innocent of this. And yet, it didn't work. Wash your hands in water, you're still guilty of the crime. Protest your innocence, you're still guilty. And he knew it. And and then the religious leaders that brought the Lord Jesus and sought his crucifixion and orchestrated and planned it and when they were fulfilling their act and bringing him to be crucified, they wouldn't even go into Pilate's chambers in order, in Pilate's court in order to accuse him because they wanted to keep themselves pure for the Passover celebration. That's another thing that people do when they're guilty is they double down in the religion. They double down in the moral activity to somehow whitewash by their morality and by their religion the sins that they know they have. That doesn't work either. They can try that they want. They're still guilty. You'll find that when individuals know that they've sinned and they've broken God's laws and they feel it, that very often they'll become more religious than ever before. Go light a candle or go do something in order to feel better, but it doesn't work. Again, when the conscience is disturbing a person and you know that you've done wrong, oftentimes you'll attempt to kill it with laughter. That's the predicate between before most of the comedies that you see on television. The idea is if you can laugh at your sin, well, then you can convince yourself that your sin isn't to be taken too seriously. The mocking and the joking that take place at the foot of the cross of Jesus reveal that this age-old strategy is being deployed, and it also reveals that the people are feeling guilty, and no matter whether you laugh at it or not, the guilt remains to the end. You need something more than personal declarations of innocence and defenses for your innocence. You need something more than religious or moral cover-ups. And you need something more than just joking away. You need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. Forgiveness, by the way, is not automatic. If it were, Jesus would have offered it instead of praying for it. It's conditional upon our repentance and faith in the forgiver. The ones who are killing the Lord Jesus are not repenting of their actions at the moment. The ones who are killing the Lord Jesus are not believing in him in that moment. He didn't offer them forgiveness in that moment. He prayed for it. He prayed that one day they would come to see their sin and trust in the one who could forgive them of all their sins. And then Jesus rose again from the grave, demonstrating that he had the power to bring the forgiveness that they needed. And so the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He prayed the prayer for us. He died, and then he rose again as the one who had the power to deliver on the prayer. He alone can forgive us. Yes, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Here's the second thing. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. He declares to the thief who had initially been mocking him himself. The great question here is, beyond forgiveness, can I be restored into relationship? When I was a little boy and I did something naughty, I didn't enjoy the spankings that I got, and I got a lot of them. And I also didn't enjoy the scoldings, and I got a lot of those too. But what I didn't like were the words, I'm disappointed with you. They seemed to drive a wedge between me and my parents. 
I wanted their forgiveness. I wanted forgiveness for my mom, and I wanted forgiveness for my dad in those tender years because I needed to be near them, and I needed to be with them. And you know this is the case, that sin fractures trust. It breaks faith with others. You sin against another person, and it insidiously goes in to destroy the relationship you have with that person. It's not a good thing, because it's not good for a man to live alone. We need one another, and sin drives us away from one another. It leaves us alienated. Beyond the impact that it has interpersonally between ourselves and others, it goes out to drive us away from the one who knows us best and loves us the most and desires above all others our good and our fellowship. It drives us from God. Sin drives us from his presence, just as it drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. The question is, if God can forgive us, and if there is really actual forgiveness to be known between us and others, and us and God, can following the forgiveness there be a relationship that's restored, that's realized? And the thief is dying on the cross, and he's been mocking Jesus as he's dying there, and something happens, his mind turns, and he comes into repentance. He doesn't blame or excuse himself. He stops his mocking. He confesses that he's actually getting what he deserves in crucifixion. This crucifixion, this suffering, I deserve it, he says. That's repentance. And then he turns to the Lord Jesus, and he says, you're returning again to reign in your kingdom. Remember me, and that's faith. He wants forgiveness, but he wants something more when he says, Lord, remember me. He's asking for a place in God's kingdom. He's a man who is dying alone on a cross, and at the very end, he's still longing for restoration and relationship. We need it. Even when we're dying, we need it. We need to know that we're connected and we're engaged and we're loved. And Jesus answers him and says to him, Today, today, you are returning with me to the garden. That's what paradise means, by the way. Today, you'll be with me, with me, with me, with me. What a wonderful word, with, in paradise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead assures us that in believing in Him, we will no longer be alienated from God. We will not be alone. We will not be cast out to float in some sea of endless isolation, but we'll be with. We'll be in relationship. Not just forgiveness, reconciliation. The next thing that the Lord Jesus says from the cross is, Woman, behold your son. To John, John, behold your mother. And... This is the third statement, and let's just acknowledge we're practical beings, and the question that's being answered here is, who will provide for us? In life, to some extent, we have to learn to take care of ourselves, but we work in a constant state of dependence. We learn ultimately that we're not self-contained, and we're not self-sustained creatures. Only God is self-contained, and only God is self-sustained, and Our needs move from the sublime to the very simple. We need bread, and we need water, and we need homes, and we need health, and we're fragile beings living in a monstrous world. Jesus from the cross, while bearing the hellish storm of injustice and sin, stops to take care of the need of his mother. And he rose again with the assurance that he'll take care of us as well. 
You'll remember when the Lord Jesus rose again from the grave, he appeared to his disciples. He didn't stay with them all the time. It wasn't steady state where they were with them all the time. He left them to themselves. They didn't know what to do with their lives now. And so they went back to Galilee where they were fishermen. And there were a number of them that were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they weren't just sporting. They weren't doing it as a pastime. This was their livelihood. This is how they lived. And they're out fishing. They weren't having any success at all. And the Lord Jesus appeared on the shore. The risen Lord Jesus after he'd risen from the grave. He says, why don't you cast your nets over on this side of the boat? And they do, and their nets are filled with fish. And then John recognizes that the Lord Jesus, uh, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to him. The rest of them haul in, which was kind of selfish of Peter, by the way. All the rest of them had to haul in the fish. And Anyhow, they ultimately get to the shore with their nets full of fish, and the Lord Jesus is there, and he's already started a fire. And he's cooking a meal for them on the beach. It's a small little gesture, and it's full of messaging. There are all kinds of things that we could mine out of that event, but surely it also means this. He's watching over them still, and he's taking care of them, and he's going to meet their needs. This is also something that's within. It's a good thing, by the way, when you want to take care of your family and provide for it and watch over it. I remember when my father was passing away, and he's breathing his last, and he's within the last hours of his life. He's had a stroke, and so he's not thinking clearly, but the one thing he's thinking of over and over again is trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to provide for our mother. This life of providing for ourselves and others goes with us all the way to the end. And the question then is still begging, who will continue to provide? You know, you want to provide for your family, but they're likely going to live longer than you. Your ability to provide for them will only go so far. Who will provide for them then? You won't be able to, but he can. He will. He rises from the grave to watch over us and care for us and our basic needs. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.